This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to be joined on CFB today by former Blackburn, Chelsea and of course Celtic striker Chris Sutton. Chris is involved in the media down south and in Scotland quite a lot but he's here today to discuss his new book, You're Better Than That, How to Fix Modern Football. It's available at Amazon, Waterstones, all good booksellers and even Ian Wright agrees that it's a great book. He said, a truly brilliant book, just don't tell him I said that. First of all Chris, how are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. Excited about the book, uh, which hasn't been out long, um, but uh, really enjoyed writing it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of football, as, uh, as you well know. Um, played the game. Uh, my father was a footballer as well. And, uh, but while I'm a big fan of football, it does have its issues. And that's what the book is about, addressing issues which uh, I think not just me, but a lot of a lot of football fans uh, around the country, um, subjects which they feel very, very strongly about. One of the things that I want to start by talking about is in the book you talk about finances and money in football, Chris. It's in part three of the book. It's called In the Money. Now, the reason I want to ask you that first is because you played for a Celtic team that had so many top-class players yourself, Alan Thompson, John Hartson, Stylian Petrov, Henrik Larsson, so many others I could name as well. Martin Neal, of course, the manager. You got to, to European finals. You were playing in the European elite competition and you were a team that people feared. The, for Scottish teams now, it's much more difficult. Their European counterparts get more money. I mean, you look at the Premier League and the money that's in there. How on earth can teams from Scotland and other small nations compete? And, and how would you propose bridging the gap between the bigger clubs and the smaller clubs when it comes to finance and football? Um. <clears throat> Well, I think that, uh, you know, with regards to, to Scottish football, I think that uh, Scottish football fans understand what the game is up there and the difference between Scottish football and the football south of the border. And when I talk about south of the border, we're talking predominantly about the, the Premier League, the riches of the Premier League. You know, the worst team in the Premier League uh, would get £120 million every year in Scotland you win the league, uh, you know, I think it's, it's £4 million or, you know, a, a paltry amount uh, in respect of football. And it's it's exceptionally hard for the likes um, of Celtic and Rangers when they go into European football to actually even compete uh, at Champions League and Europa League level and other, you know, Scottish clubs, of course, you know, the likes of Aberdeen and Motherwell who are in this season. But I think Scottish fans... Uh, enjoy the league and, and, the, and the football for what it is and don't care about what people think south of the border. Um, football isn't just about the Premier League. And, you know, there was football before the Premier League, and I touch on that in, the, you know, in, the, in a couple of the chapters uh, about renaming on-field uh, positions. You know, everybody raves about Pep Guardiola, who, of course, has come over and, uh, and transformed 
the game with the way that Manchester City played five defenders and five attackers. But uh, it, <laughs> I did a bit of research on this. Herbert Chapman, who was the Arsenal manager in the, in the 1930s, was playing that formation and winning doubles, you know, 90 odd years ago. So, you know, it's not, it's not that revolutionary and, uh, and what have you, what, uh, what Pep has done. There was football before the Premier League and, uh, and people thoroughly enjoyed it. They certainly do. And, and, and I think that aspect comes up quite a lot, when, especially when it comes to great goal scorers who played pre-Premier League. I mean, Gary Lineker is the one who brings it up quite a lot, where any time someone puts a statistic out saying that there's been a Leicester player scored 20 goals for the first time in, in, in a top-flight season, he always laughs and says, well, I was doing that before the Premier League. Now, obviously, Chris, you played in the Premier League era, but do you have sympathy and can you understand the frustration from players that had great careers but didn't play in that Premier League era? Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Uh, and, you know, I, I understand the anger north of the border when there's criticism of the Scottish League. It, the, the product in Scotland is very, very good. And, and the, the barometer of a product is how many people actually turn up and, and go through the turnstiles to watch the games. And in Scotland... Uh, it's it's higher than any other country in Europe. I think people actually going in to watch, uh, uh, you know, uh, f- football north of the border, and that's all that matters. That the Scottish people love the product up there, and you know, while I think we all understand that the Premier League has greater resources, of course they do. You can pay players more, can pay extortionate uh, transfer fees. Scottish people don't care because they like what, what they see. And uh, and you know I totally buy into that, and it's the same in the in the in the lower leagues and the non leagues, uh, all across the country. That you know people support their clubs because they they love the clubs. It doesn't always have to be about the big boys, you know the the, the great entities and and the biggest club. It's about the clubs you uh, you know you you grow up supporting your local clubs, your community clubs, and it's important that uh, I mean I, I I think the last chapter of the book is uh, is about technology and and you know a, a strong point in that is that um that while the population is increasing um there's a decline in 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 the, the number of football clubs that there are about football clubs are disbanding leagues are disbanding all across the country and that's that's an oddity to me. You know, it, it shouldn't be that way with the population increase. People just aren't playing sport as much, and that's a that's a massive disappointment uh, to me. I don't understand why. I mean, obviously, I, I played professional football, I played professional sport, but that really wasn't um, it necessarily in my thinking when I was younger. I wanted to be a professional sports person, but I loved playing sport I drill into my uh, into my children about the importance of, uh, of of playing sport whether it's football whether it's cricket whether it's badminton tennis whatever it is it's about lifestyle it's about health and it's about making friends through uh, through, through sports clubs and it's it, it's so so important and you know as I say sports clubs are dying across the country and that's that's something which you know I would like to see change but because of technology because of um playstation i mean I, I have big arguments with my sons about you know they sit on playstation for hours i say you should be out you know if you're out practicing your your football and your cricket and what have you then uh, you know maybe you could be better and play to a better level than you than you have done and when you actually i mean i was reading and this is you know in, in the book as well 
they're talking about esports becoming uh, actual uh, Olympic sports. But Olympic sports are about uh, <laughs> about agility and 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 fitness and pace and movement. Uh, you know, and you you can't you can't have an Olympic sport which you know where where people are sitting down twiddling a joystick eating fish and chips and crisps and drinking cans of iron bro come on i mean you know the, the book's title you're better than that 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 cannot happen it you know it shouldn't happen so while i you know understand the importance of technology and uh, you know i think we all do the fact that um, that you know technology can help build relationships and you know there there are upsides to technology but there are plenty of downsides and sport will suffer. We have the third highest obesity rates in this country in Europe. And, uh, and so therefore, I'm not just talking about professional sport here. I'm talking about all sports as a lifestyle. My mum said to me that 40 years ago, um, if you drove through any town or village across the country, you would see kids out on the recreation grounds on the side of the road There'd be jumpers down as goalposts. They would be playing sport, no matter what it was. Drive through a city centre, through villages these days, what do you see? You see people looking down at the phones. And, and technology and the iPhone is taking over, and, and it's, it's not for the good. I agree in terms of it's very true when it comes to the, the younger generation. I mean, they're sometimes referred to now as the Instagram generation where it's all about perception. It's it's about how you look and how you brand yourself, for want of a better phrase. And, and that's something when it comes to, to sport. You talked about playing football and playing cricket that can be that can be quite interesting in terms of development because you, you have to develop by playing the game rather than watching it and, and playing on a PlayStation. And as well as the technology, one of the things I want to talk about is in the book, it's not all technology that's changing the way we live and, and changing the way football lives. The humans involved in football are a fan of changing the rules quite often. And, and you've said in the book quite clearly, please stop the pointless rule changes. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, the, the, the chapter on uh, pointless rule changes, when you actually strip you know, strip it back. Some of the rule changes which which have, have, have come into play in recent times. The ball can be kicked in any direction from kickoff. Who cares? What was wrong with the way it actually was before? I, I don't care. I don't think anybody sitting, you know, watching on television in the stands would, would think about that. You, you make the point, a, a really good point about the, and there's been a lot of uh, contentious issues uh, this season about the handball. Um, law and, and, and the situation with that it's been a catastrophe that will that will absolutely change because it doesn't add up if you're an attacking player and the ball touches your arm and you score from that even though it's accidental then it, you know it doesn't count but a defending player then uh, then you know it, it, it may not matter in that situation that will change but little things like uncontested drop balls I mean that's as a spectator going to the grounds going to matches you know these these are things that I, I like to see you want to see the two toughest guys on each team facing each other up don't you you're waiting for the ball to be dropped from the referee and you're hoping that one 
or the other will wipe the other guy out or, you know, take him around the kneecap. It's, you know, it's, it, it's gladiatorial. It's a duel, isn't it? That's, that's something we miss. I mean, but there are, there are so, I mean, other rule changes. You can have 12 players on the, on the bench in a Champions League final. Well, what's the point? You know, you can only uh, you know only put three on. I think there's well five now with uh, with since COVID has come on. What's the point of of having twelve on? I, I mean, it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And, and one of the strangest ones um, for me was that the, the refs must caution a player who delay the restart of play by appearing to take a throw in, but suddenly leave it to a teammate to take. So you shape up to take a throw-in and you don't take it, you put it down and you get a caution for that. You get cautioned uh, for making uh, the, the TV sign for, for VAR now. But you can call the ref every name under the sun and you know you get nothing for that or, or on occasion. You, they should get booked for that. So there are, I mean, it's not just one or two rule changes is which I'm talking about here. It is numerous. It's it's rule change after rule change, and these people, you know, who 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 are you know actually making the rules, what are they thinking of? I mean, you know, when somebody comes up with the suggestions, you know, about let's change the kickoff, for example, you know, let let's be different in that respect. What? Why would? What's the point? You know, I don't, I don't get it. It's just maybe to keep them in a job. I don't get it though. I agree. There's been, there's been some interesting ones now. Understand with the, the, the warm weather when they talk about water breaks, but that's another one that came in obviously post COVID, which at times you go and it's absolutely pouring a rain. The players are freezing on the pitch, but we're stopping for a water break. Yeah, I, I think we understand why, but. Uh, I mean, it's, it's actually certainly down south. Games have been hugely affected by by um, by coaches actually being able to have those few minutes and change tactic. Of course, it happened in the uh, in the FA Cup final where Arsenal had a really slow start. Chelsea went ahead in the game. Mikel Arteta used that uh, that break to his advantage, and, and Arsenal never never looked back after that. So. Uh, I think that we want to see it back as, as soon as possible because you know you 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 don't want the game to lack continuity and it's uh, yeah it's a, it, we don't want it to be so stop start now and you know especially now with the excessive subs which which we have. Another thing that you mentioned, Chris, is post-match interviews and press conferences. Now we get more of these now more than ever in the sense that. You get a press conference before every game, you get a press conference after every game, you get player interviews before, during the week, after games as well. But it's something that frustrates me because you would think the fact that there's more airtime of these things to become more entertaining, but sadly it's still a case of the old cliches, game of two halves, etc. How do we change that? Because if we if we compare it to pundits, guys like yourself and others are are more outspoken now than ever, talking about a manager not getting it right, something has to change, holding people to account. But players just aren't the same. As I've said, it's it's cliches and it's the, the same stock answers. Um well the 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 beauty of the book in in my opinion is that while I'm a a middle aged man having a you know a good a good few moans and, and rants um I think that the difference with this book is that 
I'm calling out the problems, but I'm actually giving solutions to it and I'm giving cures to what the issues are. So, you know, I suppose that, uh, that with, the, with the managerial uh, stuff after games and with players after games, uh, you know, I've been a player myself, I've been a manager myself. I, do I understand why a lot of managers straight back situations? Yes, I do, because they're just towing the the party political line you know they're they're doing what's right for their club saying what's right but it's but it's boring we don't you know we don't actually want to see uh standard and norm you know game you've you've said it, a game of two hearts i at halves i was i was gutted that we lost the game yeah i'm delighted uh the lads done well all stuff like that you know it's it's boring it's it's utter crap you know you you actually want to get down to uh, to what actually happened out there, what people saw. We've, we've had years of Arsene Wenger saying, "I didn't see this incident. I didn't see that incident when uh, when things um, you know went against uh, uh, have gone against Arsenal." Um, and it, and it's not good enough. And you know, my my cure, I would say, read the book to find my cure. This is quite an extreme one with this particular chapter, but I I quite like it. You know, I uh, I quite like it. I don't want to give away, but that's one of my favourite cures. What we want is we want managers to come out and be authentic, and just if they want to shoot from the hip, shoot from the hip, and there should be no punishment. If they do that, and that that's a small that's a small snippet of what my cure is, but I uh, that that one actually I uh, I do quite like it. And of course, I've been you know when I when I first started as a player, no media training at all. I used to bang out all these cliches as well. You know, delight delighted we won that year. It's a great cross from Terry, and I nodded to tuck that in nicely. <laughs> Or, you know all that nonsense, and I used to do it. And then I've had the other extreme, where uh, you know after the um, the final day of the season up in Scotland, the, you know what I said about Dunfermline, where you know I mean, and I, I got myself into into really really hot water. But in fairness, I said what I felt at the time, and albeit uh, you know it's quite a hairy situation for me for a number of, a number of days and weeks after that. Uh, people talked about it, and that's uh, that's what we want, isn't it? One of the things that makes me laugh at the moment, I have to say, and I'm not making light the pandemic in any way, but when it comes to the transfer window, you've got the elite clubs saying that, and other clubs um, out with the elite as well saying, our oh, transfer fees will come down, it's a pandemic year, things will start coming back down. But when it comes to things like ticket prices, do you seriously think ticket prices are going to drop for the fans, despite the fact there's a pandemic? I think we both know the answer to that. How do we sort out the situation for fans? Because you've talked about clubs and 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 people in the book fleeting fans. How how do we how do we solve that? I think ticket prices are a big bone of uh, contention. Um, I think that uh, another frustration is is the price of, uh, of of shirts, club shirts. I think I'm right in saying now for a Liverpool first team shirt, it's it, it can be north of £100, which football is a working class game. And I'm not just singling out Liverpool here. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> this happens across the board, um, at, you know, especially at Premier League clubs. 
every year clubs change their shirt. They have, I mean, some clubs have four different kits. And, you, you know, you can imagine parents and, uh, and kids saying to the parents, they, you know, they, they, they want to keep up with everybody else. But the price of shirts is, you know, absolutely excessive and it is exploitation. It's, you know, it's as, it's as simple as that. I don't, I don't really have to tell people this. Uh, I think everybody can see that. And, you know, and, and ticket pricing. I think in the Premier League now, there is a £30 cap on away tickets. And, and that is a start. But then you have the, the, the different category uh, prices of tickets, which are, you know, just, just extraordinary, the, the differential between that. And, you know, when you actually think, and as you know, said a couple of moments ago, the football is a working class sport. What is the cost to the average family, you know, uh, parents and two kids going to watch a game of football on a Saturday afternoon? And it's it's extortionate. It's it's you know extortionate. It's it's a big, huge layout. Add add on that the price of you know kits, the price of um, of food inside grounds. It's not cheap. It's absolutely not cheap. So families across the country have to have to plan how they are going to how they are going to to spend really, and whether they can afford to go. And that 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 should never really ever be the case it should absolutely not be the case where you know your working class guy can't afford to uh, to go to football matches but the simple facts are is that is that football fans across the country are being exploited with ticket pricing with shirts they absolutely are and, and as you've said one kit per year at the price of £60 would still be a lot for people to stump up, but they would probably, through gritted teeth, have to do it. Whereas, as you've said, when it comes how, to... How much, how much does it cost to make these shirts as well? What is the markup on these shirts? And, and, and what clubs, um, you know, they're, they're extremely clever with this, is, is they know that... <laughs> They know that kids will do everything they want, or you know, real football fans will want to, will want to have the new shirt, the in shirt, and uh, you know, it's it's just the way it is. So you can say that that clubs are being clever, and I, I think we understand that. But are they, you know, are they being clever? Yes, but are they exploiting? Absolutely, they are. They are, and that really shouldn't be the case. Another important aspect of the book is is the managerial merry-go-round. I mean, whether it's the Premier League, whether it's the, the National League, it's an on-league setup, whether it's in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, across Europe, does it matter? There's always going to be and there always are managerial changes every year. How 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 does that how can that be changed? And and one of the people you mentioned in the book, of course, is is Frank De Boer, who got well less than the ten games at Crystal Palace and they invest in him. Get him into the club. There's lots of excitement, and then, as I say, within ten games, he's gone. Four games he got, um, which was, which is just, which is just madness. Um, you, you, you strip it all back. You think that uh, that that this guy, and we don't have to use necessarily Frank De Boer uh, as an example, but he's a good example. So he goes through the whole interview process. He sits in front of a board and and he will talk about his plans for the club and most managers uh, I, I would think would, would talk about long-term planning 
and 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 how they want to appro uh, approach management and this is the way i want to do it and this is the way i will uh, i will make changes um and the board will he'll, he'll leave the room or maybe go back in for a second interview some circumstances go back for a third interview and the board will sit or the owners will you know football clubs will sit and discuss whether uh, you know, he should get the job and, and obviously the manager who gets the job is the guy who has impressed the owners, impressed the board that much with what they've had to say that they are given the job. Um, and then within, in Frank DeBoer's case, within four games, all of that has gone out of the window. So they trusted him in the process. They trusted him in terms of what he had to say. And then within a short space of time, the trust had, had, had completely gone. And the problem with the game now, if you went back 20, 30, 40 years, is the game is su such a short-term game now in terms of what club owners are thinking. And, and, and that is why if a manager loses four games, five games on the trot, he could be out of a job. So, you know, <laughs> managers are going for interviews now and talk about long-term planning. That's that's pie in the sky now, isn't it? Um, but when you actually think about logically and, and you think, for example, um, about uh, managers like Sean Dyche, who went in at Burnley and uh, got the club promoted, but then got relegated. Now, normally, if you get relegated from the Premier League, your manager is sacked. Burnley stuck with Sean Dyche. He gets them back up. And then he gets Burnley into a position where they, they, they haven't been great spenders over the years. And, you know, I think we would say Burnley were once a massive football club, but they're not a big footballing power down south now. But he has stabilised the club and, and got there and taken them to a level with the work he's done over so many years through the fact that he has been able to implement his ideas and he has been given time. And, and they are reaping the benefits from that. And uh, I think that certainly north of the border, it is, and I understand Celtic and Rangers are in some ways <laughs> different managerial positions just because of how much pressure there is to win. And it's all about winning north of the border. But I think for, and this, this, this does matter to Celtic and Rangers as well, but for a lot of clubs, um, to, to encourage uh, youth development and stability, I think that managers, certainly the sensible option is for managers to be, to be given time and to, to actually look all the way through the club from the first team um, through into the youth department and into the academy and the, and the chance to develop young footballers and if a manager is is given time then I do believe that that certainly football clubs all across the board but certainly in Scotland will benefit from that because the issue is this and I, and I think we all understand the issue if a manager's job <clears throat> is on the line and at risk and he hasn't won for maybe four or five games and he has he has a choice to make whether he should pick somebody uh, from, the, uh, from the youth team or the academy or the reserves or whatever you want to call it, who has been performing really, really well over uh, a long period of time. A young, up-and-coming player who is, who is doing ever so well. 
or he can pick a fringe first-team player who is an international player, hasn't played much, but has 40 or 50 caps for his country, who has a, you know, numerous appearances um, you know, throughout his career, has been a good player in the past. Uh, but on this particular game, the manager needs to, needs to win it. He's always going to go for the tried and trusted, the guy who's been there and, and, and done it. And therefore, because of the short-termist thinking, the short-term thinking, I should say, from, from club boards and the, and, the, and the furore and the necessity to actually win football matches, I think the downside of that is, is young players aren't going to get the opportunities. And therefore, clubs, which certainly in Scotland need to be self-sufficient, that will not happen enough. So there needs to be greater patience. When managers are given the job, there needs to be greater patience and trust in the uh, in, in the job which uh, which they tell the the owners that they are going to do. So uh, again, with I, I'm not going to give away my cure for this one, but I think the cure is a is a is a pretty logical one. Another thing I want to mention, and it links to, to management, to be honest as well. As a fan, I've got to say it's one of the things that really really annoys me. I mean, and what I'm talking about is, is people that say top four is better than an FA Cup. I mean, I've never played the game to any great level, so I'm not the one whose opinion is going to count here, of course. You have played the game, Chris. You've won major trophies such as the Premier League and others. Surely, surely as a footballer, winning a trophy is far more memorable than, than a top four finish. Yeah, uh... <laughs> Again, I think that you know, so there's a chapter in the book about making the FA Cup special again. It's a, it's a huge issue. This is south of the border. It's it's a massive issue, and you know, in the League Cup as well. Um, the truth is, with the League Cup, it's a big deal to clubs once they get into the semi-finals. Uh, but but before the semi-finals, they will play the kids. A lot of Premier League clubs. Will play, will will play the kids, and there, you know, there's another chapter in the book which is about uh, stop players to stop moaning and managers to stop moaning about there being too many games. I think back in the day, John Robertson at Nottingham Forest played something like 62 games in a season, and they had they had tight, you know small, really small squads. Um, but in terms of in terms of the FA Cup, but this has happened for for years and years and years. The Premier League is everything to club owners. And I don't know whether club owners influence managers and say, you know, that, uh, that I'm not bothered about the FA Cup this season. It's all about staying in the Premier League because of the knock-on effect, because we, we need the Premier League riches to reinvest. But simply from a player's perspective and also a fan's perspective, I think it is so so important because if you know I'm a, I'm a I'm a football fan as well if I was a hardcore fan for a for a football club the truth is is you get your greatest memories from from cup runs you use Wigan as an example um and you know they've they've had a you know really tough season Manager under difficult circumstances. Paul Cook did a fantastic job, uh, but you know they end up uh, points deducted, and uh, and you know going into administration and going down. But their their great 
greatest uh, or one of their greatest ever achievements in a season where they actually got relegated was winning the FA Cup, beating Manchester City in the final. Roberto Martinez was the manager. If you're a Wigan fan, that is a day out you would remember for absolutely, absolutely ever. So the fact that um, the fact that I mean we had last season the likes of uh, of Bournemouth who would make eleven changes. They've done it for a couple of seasons now. Um, I think they. I think one of the games, I may be wrong with this, but they went up to play, I can't remember, they went up north, it may have been Newcastle, I may be wrong with this. Anyway, the point being this, is this. If I was a Bournemouth fan, and I followed them all across the country, to every game, and it came down to the FA Cup, and my manager made 11 changes for an FA Cup tie, basically played a second string side, so didn't have any real intent to win the game, was hoping they'd win the game, and these players would, you know, would play unbelievably well, whatever. I, I would actually like to know if I'm a football fan and I'm going to spend my hard-earned cash on travel and you know, maybe a hotel and, and food. I'm going to, if I'm going to spend my money for the weekend, and that would be a considerable amount of money, the manager should actually tell the public, tell the football fan that uh, they're not going to play um, uh, the, the first 11 sides. So then football fans, we're not going to take it safe. We're not going to take the FA Cup seriously. And then, um, uh, and then at least you know and you have a choice to make as a fan. As a player, as a player, absolutely, I would want to... Your memories come from winning trophies. That's where your great memories come from. Who, who when they're 82 years old, to the grandkids is going to say, do you know what? We finished fourth. In the Premier League, we finished on level points with uh, with Wolverhampton Wanderers, but our goal difference was better. Wasn't that great? Or would you rather say, you know, we we won an FA Cup final, we beat Arsenal in the final, three two. It was an unbelievable match. You know, we were two nil down. I mean, that's a story. That's a story. So, you know, it it's it's a massive. <clears throat> massive problem south of the border this is and um, again there are there are pretty obvious cures where I do think that there are there are things which can be done which can certainly uh, can, can certainly stand the FA Cup into uh, to, to where it was when I was younger when I was growing up in terms of it being the biggest event of the season comes to the FA Cup, Chris, I agree with you. It's a great tournament. There's been so many great moments over the years and, and you've mentioned so many cures in the book for, for some of these big issues and, of course, we won't give them all away because we're encouraging you to buy the book because it really is worth it. But what I want to do now, Chris, if you don't mind, is touch on a chapter that's very personal to you. Um, you've spoken about your father um, who has suffered from dementia. There are clear links to... Former footballers, um, especially of your father's generation, um, having dementia. The statistics are there for all to see. There was a documentary by one of your former teammates highlighting the link just a few years ago. Just how frustrating is it for you that this issue doesn't seem to ever be dealt with seriously enough by the the PFA, Gordon Taylor and the likes of that? Because, And I'm not putting words in your mouth by saying this, Chris, but... For me, it's an absolute scandal and it's a disgrace. And it's something that these people in power 
who have the chance to to make a change should be ashamed of because it's scandalous that nothing's been done. Yeah, um, the, I mean, it, it's 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 become very clear to see that there there is a link uh, with with heading the ball and uh, and uh, former players. Alzheimer's and dementia—it's it, you're five times more likely to uh, to get Alzheimer's um, if you if you're headed football. Three and a half times more likely uh, to get dementia. These are facts, you know. That the, these these aren't throwaways. These are the, the 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 testing has been done. These are these are facts. My biggest concern is that within the game there is nowhere near enough support um, for this campaign and my biggest concern is that in 15-20 years my generation of player uh, and, and this will happen this would this will happen um, you know I'm 100% certain of this we will uh, my generation there will be a lot of players who will end up with dementia will end up with Alzheimer's and their families will be saying in 15, 20 years, why on earth didn't we do more? Why on earth didn't we try harder to, to find uh, uh, a, 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 a link and possibly a cure or, you know, do more research, put more money into research? Why was there not the will within the game to do so? And there's a lot of high-profile uh, people within the game who have strong opinions about a wide range of, of, of subjects, politics, whatever, but they will not get involved in this, with this subject. And I don't know whether it's because these people have links to Gordon Taylor, who's the head of the PFA down south, but how how can we move forward with the dementia issue when you have a guy in charge of the players union who has not shown the correct duty of care and respect to his members it is his job as head of the players union to actually look after his former players current players and his former players and gordon taylor uh it's been there a long time and he has done some good things for the PFA. But what he's actually done or more importantly not done in terms of dementia, you use the word scandal. It has been a scandal. But when you have a guy in charge who has acted in the way which uh, he, he did act and he didn't for 10 years, uh, for more than a decade after the testing stopped, Gordon Taylor knew about why the testing had stopped to find a link between uh, heading a ball and dementia. And do you know what? Had he, had he come out at the time, because not all testing works, and said, well, hang on a minute, you know, this, this testing didn't work, uh, we're going to try again, then there wouldn't have been any issue. But the fact of the matter is, is he, he said nothing. He kept quiet for whatever many years. Maybe he was worried about legal action because there are obvious... There may be obvious issues if there is a, um, you know, litigation issues further down the line, uh, and, and and former players could sue. I mean, that is that's that's the truth of the matter. That doesn't detract from uh, his role as head of the players' union and his duty of care to the likes of my dad, who who's rotting away in a care home, and other people, hundreds and thousands of families across the country who are having to deal with this 
horrendous situation where their loved ones in front of their eyes are are losing their dignity and and the thing with dementia and alzheimer's uh is there's not a day where things ever get better my dad i, I think speaking to my mom has probably had um dementia for the best part of of a decade now and it's been a gradual decline where he's he's in a care home now and he he needs to be in a care home for his own good uh where he can't he doesn't know how to eat he doesn't know how to toilet he can't stand up anymore he is you know that's that's not the that, that's not the man who was my father a strong character a funny man who's a really well respected well after he finished playing he came back to norfolk he was a school teacher and that, that makes me really proud i'm on social media as you well know that people you know it, he always a lot of the the sort of local uh rogue school kids he used to get them in order and they they love the sport and uh, uh and it, I, I take great pride when i go around the the, the the city and people mention my dad and say you know it's a a really good teacher and I've never heard a bad word said about him and then but then you see you know I go and see him and, and see what he is now and honestly it's 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 heartbreaking it is because you can't you can't do anything I want to do something about it but you know, I can't do anything all I do I'll go I'll sit I'll hold his hand and uh, and speak to him nothing comes back he doesn't he, you know he doesn't know he doesn't know me I'm just hoping that something get through when I leave him and, and I go home. I never tell him that I'm going to go because <laughs> whether he knows or not, I don't know, but I don't want him to, I don't want him to sort of feel upset with me in any way. It's, you know, it's, it's a nightmare situation for my mum as well. And, you know, she's been with my dad for 56 years. He doesn't know my mum. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's just horrific and it's going to get worse and worse and worse is a man who's you know if you'd have said if you'd have said to him 20 years ago this was going to happen and this was the way he's going to end his life i'd say he, he would have said you know i he, he would have said i'd rather be dead than than end a life like this and that's just the way it is and the way i see him i you know i understand that i you know if it ever happens to me if it ever happens to me, I'd feel the same. I I wouldn't want to die in that manner. He's, he's lost. He's lost everything. He's lost his dignity. He's, he's lost his mind. This is a a cruel, cruel disease. And the reason I push and Dawn Astle pushes, um, her father Jeff Astle, um, you know, she was the one who highlighted it when he when he died. Jeff Astle. And the, the coroner's report, uh, um, the verdict said that it was, uh, it was industrial disease. It was uh, Boxer's brain. And that verdict from the coroner's report was never recognised at the time because obviously if, if it was, um, was recognised industrial disease, then this is why I think that there's, there's a worry from the PFA and the FA because there could be multiple claim for all all i'm asking is is for the guy whose duty of care and responsibility is to look after his ex-players to, to to do the right thing other trade union bosses do it may not be popular with with 
with other people around the country, other trade union bosses' views over the years, but they look after their own. They, they do the job which they were, were, were mapped out to, to do. Gordon Taylor, in my view, my dad knew Gordon Taylor. He, he knew him pretty well. Gordon Taylor has, has, has let my dad down and, and hundreds and thousands of footballers and their families down across the country. And, uh, and that's, that's a fact. That, that has happened. And uh, the sooner he steps down, uh, the better. And, and maybe we can move on and, and this whole dementia issue can move forward. But with him at the helm, it's not going to be the case. He's the great survivor. It certainly needs to move forward. And, and my thoughts and best wishes are with your family and your father, of course, because as you've said, Dementia is an issue that affects a lot of families in the UK and, and especially when there is evidence to showcase the link between football and, and dementia in, in your family's case and, and, and Don Astor's case as well. It's, as I say, in my opinion, it's a scandal that, that, that it's not been looked into in any great detail by the powers that be and it has to well, be. We, we get to the stage, Callum. Yeah, we get to the stage where, I mean, you know, this has been going on for years. Don Astor's been been banging the drum for what best part of 20 years maybe maybe more than 20 years and the truth of it is it, it's so frustrating because you feel like you're gaining momentum at times you mentioned the Alan Shearer documentary which was a brilliant documentary because it highlighted massive issues which there were but then then it fizzles out and the support just goes away it dies again and then it then it starts up again and then it dies again and that's the that's the biggest frustration. And it's just like, you know, you're just like banging your head against the wall with all this. Uh, I suppose you could say that there's been small steps now, encouraging steps with the banning of heading for, for under 11s, I think, you know, across the across the country. Um, that's that's a sensible step to take. But we need to do we need to do far more than we are doing. There needs to be far more money going into into research and then there needs to be the most important thing is a greater will from within football which just isn't there at the moment well I've just got to hope that when Gordon Taylor leaves his post or there is a change at the PFA that, that this situation can 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 be dealt with and things can be done to address it few few questions just before I let you go Chris um, linked to the book and a, a unique part of the book there's there's top tens in the book from best FA Cup moments most entertaining teams. I want to talk to you about two of the top 10s in particular. First of all, I want to start with the top 10 hard men because Alan Shearer's in there and, and I don't think a lot of people uh, listening to this would think, Alan Shearer, really? Mm. Uh, well, I think they'd be wrong. I, <laughs> I mean, a hard, man, a hard man doesn't have to be somebody... Who uh, who goes onto a football pitch and swings haymakers every time they play? Alan Shearer was a a, a, a centre forward who took so many knocks, uh, got absolutely smashed and battered throughout his career, overcame a couple of serious injuries. When he did get battered, didn't complain, got back on his feet and got battered again. Would would take the hits mentally similar to Henrik uh, Larsson so strong on a, on a different plane to virtually everybody I, uh, I played with. So that, that was why Alan Shearer would be uh, in, in my 
top 10 hard men because he could he could dish it out but he could take it and it's important that uh you know when you talk about hard men they, they don't whinge they don't run to the referees and the linesmen and and, and uh <laughs> screaming and shouting and moaning they take things in and then they just bide the time and uh and wait, and, and Alan Shearer's biggest and, and best response was, uh, was 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 hitting the back of the net. But he was. I played it against him as a centre half for Norwich when he wasn't a big name. He was playing for Southampton, and I remember the, the afternoon him backing in and using his strength. And you know he was he was a, 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 a he hadn't progressed into the player which he he became. But he was he was certainly one of the hardest guys I came up against. Uh, I mentioned we mentioned Alan Shearer. I'm going to come to Bobo Baldi now. Just before I, I get to him, as you go further and further up the list, your eyebrows start to raise and you start to realise you go, I can understand why those guys are in the list, but as I say, I won't give that away. Um, just on Bobo Baldi, Chris, obviously he was at Celtic with yourself and the likes of Henrik Larson. Would he dare tackle Henrik Larson in training? Yeah. <laughs> He, uh, to be fair to Bobo, is that uh, he just singled everybody out. So it, you know, it wasn't, he 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 wasn't fearful of anybody. And uh, Henrik used to wear because he had the serious injury, um, broke his leg, didn't he? And so, so Henrik Henrik used to, uh, for a lot of the training sessions, he used to wear these these special shin pads. And certainly, when Bobo was up against him, sometimes he didn't wear them. But when Bobo was training, he uh, he certainly wore his shin pads and his studs when Bobo trained, because Henrik could dish it out as well. But Bobo was absolutely fearsome. I mean, he was a, he was a hundred kilos, but he was he was a hundred kilos of muscle. He was absolutely ripped. And I I tell you, I, he, he was great to to share a dressing room with. He used to lash out indiscriminately at, 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 at times in the tunnel at half time. It that they hit anybody, as I say. So uh, you just you know don't stay. You wouldn't be staying in his area when he was coming off a pitch. At least he was consistent though. Well, we've got we've talked about Shearer, we've talked about Baldy. We'll have, as I say, when you read the book and you go further up that top ten, you'll see uh, everything about it now. Something else I want to talk to you about, Chris, in this top 10 situation is the fact that you've mentioned best value transfers. And the reason I like this is because you've got quite a wee bit far back and then you've also got it up to the present day. The first one I want to talk to you about is N'Golo Kante. He cost Leicester around £5 million. And a lot of people might have thought at the time when Leicester signed him, who is this guy? And they might even have thought, oh, why Leicester win the league with him and the team? Oh, it's just a fluke. But then he goes to Chelsea and he's part of their team that goes and wins the league again. So when you talk about value for money, what a player. Well, with regards to him, I don't, I don't, I don't think any, any proper football fan who actually watched the season Leicester won the league would say that it was a fluke. It was largely because of him, that the work which he did. Uh, and the truth is, is nobody had heard of him when he, when he came over to the Premier League. Um, he's just, uh, you know, he's been a phenomenal player who deserves everything which which he's had. And you know, you talk about was he five, five and a half million pounds when he came over, which is you know, peanuts. It's, it's absolutely nothing. It's throwaway money now. I mean, it's it, it's development player money. That that's sort of sort of stuff. So he was he was phenomenal. There's some interesting ones in the um, in my view in the. Uh, 
you know, and the best value players because I'll chuck another name in there who, who you know, people may be surprised about. Virgil van Dijk is in there somewhere. I don't quite know what number, but, uh, but the money which, uh, which Liverpool paid to, to take him to Anfield was an absolute snip. An absolute snip, wasn't it? You know, you think, what, 70, 70, 75 million, I think, off the top of my head. Yeah. But look what he's achieved. So, you know, you, you, you talk about a club which hadn't, hadn't won the Premier League for 30 years. Uh, he, he took, in my opinion, Liverpool to the Champions uh, League final. And all those, all those daft scouts and managers who, uh, who looked at Scottish football and who would have watched him play at Celtic and who would have travelled up north of the border, who didn't want to really take a chance on him when he was playing at Celtic and take him down south. I mean, Liverpool must have actually been really regretting that, that they didn't sign him from Celtic rather than... That's, that's a bit of arrogance, I think, from down south and, and the views on the Scottish game. Um, there are snips north of the border. You just have to have to look closely. I think that most people in Scotland, um, you know, m- myself included, looked at Virgil van Dijk and would think, what, what is wrong with him? There isn't anything wrong with him. He can <laughs> physically... Uh, he was in fantastic condition. He was big. He was strong. He could run. Boy, could he pass as well. So, you know, there, there wasn't anything wrong with him. It was just, I think in that respect, English arrogance really towards the, the Scottish game. And when we get to near the top of that list, I'll not give away the position, we have to talk about Henrik Larsson. I mean, £650,000 Celtic paid for him. And seven great years, 242 goals, various title wins, a European final, and so much more. Just absolutely incredible. And and also on Henrik, he also says that his favourite strike partner was a certain Mr Chris Sutton. Now, how does that make you feel when someone like Henrik says that about you, Chris, when he's played with the likes of Ronaldinho, Messi, Ronaldo, Rooney, and so many more greats as well? Um, oh no! It made, of course, it makes me feel good. He was uh, he was a phenomenal player, and you know you talk about six hundred and fifty thousand. That 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 was the, you know the the greatest money that Celtic spent. And I just like his his whole story. I like him as a person. Of course, I do. Played with him for many years. Got on well with him off the pitch. But he's he's a guy who, like most footballers, I played with. Um, who had to work for everything which which he got he was a you know he he was he was the star man he was the best player he could do he could do everything he could play as a nine he could play in behind the front he could play off the wide areas you know we saw him transform the 2006 champions league final when he came on for for barcelona against arsenal and, and a, a couple of really Brilliant, incisive passes. Everybody in Scotland knew he could do that. Everybody in Sweden knew he could do that. But but he didn't always get the credit which he deserved. Then he went to Manchester United at the end of his career when he was, you know, in fairness, he was near, nearly finished, had lost a bit of pace. And Manchester United fans hold him in such high regard. And you know, they never saw the best of him. I think they were in for him a couple of times when he was at Celtic, but that tells you a lot about him, the time which he spent at Celtic, the loyalty which he 
he showed to the club. And the biggest compliment I would I would pay him, and he was a superstar, is deep, deep down, he was a team player, a team man. It was all about team ethic, work, work ethic. He would he would it, it, he wasn't a prima donna. He would work harder than anybody else than everybody else and he would he would expect the same from 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 everybody and that's why everybody at Celtic at that particular time of course the fans loved him but as you know as a as a player in the dressing room he was just normal but everybody looked up to him and and respected him not just for his footballing ability but for what was actually inside would you say he was the best player you ever played with yeah, well, I've had this, you know, normally if I go and do a few dinners, you get asked, was it, you know, who's the best player, Shearer or Larson? But Larson could do, Larson could play in so many positions. Larson was was far more versatile. And this isn't a criticism of Alan Shearer because Alan Shearer, you know, was, was a phenomenal number, number nine, a lethal finisher. Both had unbelievable mental strengths, but Larson could, could do absolutely everything. The only position he couldn't have played in is in goal, or he probably could. <laughs> there are many things in modern football that, that require fixing, and in the book you've given your cures, as we've talked about. We've only talked about some of the issues Chris touches on in the book. If you buy the book, you will be able to read about them all. Chris Sutton, you're better than that. How to fix modern football, available, as I say, on Amazon, Waterstones, and all good bookstores. Just before you go, Chris, have you got a message for the listeners to, to, to go out there and get the book? <laughs> uh, no, I hope people buy the book. And uh, look, I mean, my view on things is I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I, I do like an argument with people. But football, in essence, and I say it's the game I love, it's the game I think we all love. And we all have that in common. We all have our own opinions on things. And, and Sometimes we get them right, sometimes we get them wrong, but it's important that uh, the thing I love most about it with football fans, uh, I'm on social media, is it, it's, it's great to have discussions and talk about that and be animated and be passionate. That's what sport is about. That's why we love sport. That's why we, we love football. And uh, I, I hope in the book that I, I come across, I was lucky enough to, to, to play the game, but with views which most football fans would would understand uh, and and feel the same way, and I, I in my view, I think that uh, that that that's you know I'm trying to represent the 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 common football fan in this book, and I I do think I do that. You may not agree with uh, with all the arguments. You may not agree with all the cures, but it, at least I've given cures. And if you don't agree with them, then you know, tell me and uh, and let me know which what you would have done different. But uh, I, I do hope people buy it and I do hope and think that people will enjoy it. The reviews I've seen so far have been pretty good. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Callum. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make her home